22. So we're going to keep going in Luke. And the question that the text uh, brings up uh, may or may not push buttons for you. I I hope it does, because as I studied and worked on this this week, it definitely pushed many of mine. uh, As I see myself in the text and see where my sin is so present. And so the the idea that I want to push today that I think the text uh, delivers to us is how can we change the way in which we live expectant of receiving immediate tangible return for our work, our efforts, and our service. The idea is how do we not live in such a way that we believe that our service, that our work deserves recognition, that we deserve to be king, that we deserve our kingdoms to be built up, but how instead we can come under the same servant nature as God who graciously gives daily without receiving his just worship, returns, or pay for what he does without seizing and creating and sustaining, redeeming, and restoring. The point will be that we have to remember that we do have a return, we do have a reward, we do have a payout. And it's God himself now, but also fully with one day living with him in the kingdom of God for eternity, eating and drinking at his table, ruling with him in perfect restored relationship forever. So that's, that's the shape that we're going to take this morning. I'm going to try to argue that as well as I can, and I hope that we can see where we are not living in the kingdom of God, but we are experiencing this desire, this sinful desire for us to be worshipped as our own kings of our own kingdoms. So let's read, jump in, and see if I can actually show you what I think it's saying. So here we go. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. This is verse 24 all the way to 30. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who serves." You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So let's pray and jump in. Father, uh, this morning as we look at this passage, uh, would we see you more clearly? Uh, Would we understand who you are and what you've done for us. God, how you have secured our redemption and our forgiveness through what Jesus did on the cross, giving of himself, God, so that we would not have to pay the price that was on our head, that that our sin deserves, that we wouldn't have to face your wrath, but we could face your love and your acceptance, that we could become heirs of you, co-heirs with Christ, that we could... We could be with you forever in perfect restored relationship. And it is only because of what you have done and what you have invited us into. And God, would we, would we relinquish our kingdoms and, and our thrones? God, the ways in which we have tried to build up ourselves, would we instead fully worship you? Would we be reminded daily, even as we breathe and as we think, as we exist, that it is only because you will it, only because you allow it to happen. And so would we come away from this morning just more in awe of who you are and what you've done and how you deserve every ounce of our our worship and our praise and the glory and the honor that you're due? Would our lives reflect that as we go from this place. We pray in your great name, Jesus. Amen. 
So how does this text make this argument? How does this text say this? Well, let's start with verse 24 and see what happens. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Now, I'm really bad at English sometimes. And when I read this, I, 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 I miss it. And this time, I, I saw something that I hadn't seen before. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. This is not the first dispute. This is not the first dispute of this conversation that we're in. In fact, what Brian talked about last week, we're going back to that. Go back to verse 23, 24, or 22, 23, sorry. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question or dispute with one another which of them uh, it could be who is going to betray him, who is going to do this. The first argument that the disciples have, the first argument of the night, Jesus has just told them he is going to go to his death. He is going to pour out his blood. His, his body is going to be broken so that they could receive this new covenant. He would fulfill the mission that he was sent on. He would, he would come and do the thing that we most needed, which was satisfy the wrath of God, offer a, a way for forgiveness of sin to be attained by us, that, that grace could be extended. This was what was most needed for us. And then he says, and one of you will betray me to, to bring this out to its completion. And the disciples argue, who is it going to be who betrays Jesus? You can imagine in, in this sitting around the table celebrating the Passover, this, this very intimate experience, and they st- start pointing fingers. It, maybe it's Matthew. He, you know, he was a tax collector. He already had kind of dual, uh, dual loyalty, both to Rome and, and to his own people. He's probably the one who's going to betray Jesus. Somebody else would have pointed at Peter. Peter's always the one who wants to be the leader. Clearly, it's going to be Peter. He's the guy always doing silly things. Somebody, like, you know that Judas is sitting there and just as quiet as he can be, right? Just eating his bread, dipping it in the bowl with Jesus, trying to to, to fade into the background. And John's sitting there with a smirk, right? I'm his favorite. It's not going to be me. I already know the answer to this question. Going back and forth and back and forth. And then the second dispute comes. And the second dispute comes out of the realization of the fullness, the depths of what Jesus has just said. I'm going to die. I'm going to be gone. And they realize one of us gets to take over. One of us gets to be the greatest. Which one of us is going to be the leader? Which one of us is going to be the new rabbi? Which one of us is going to continue the mission that Jesus started? Doesn't that feel really dirty? Man, Jesus has just promised that he is going to give of himself. He is going to go to his death to fulfill this mission, to, to secure salvation. And they start kind of fighting over the remains already. Right? It feels a little bit like a western where the camera pans up from the darkness into the desert sand and you see footprints and they're staggered and they're stumbling. You see an empty canteen on the side and the camera pans up and you, you see the hero kind of stumbling and, and, and walking through the sand and finally fall. The camera pans out a little further and you see vultures starting to circle, like knowing that a meal is ready. Like just, just he's, he's not dead yet. 
He's not dead yet, but let's be, let's be ready. These guys are already getting business cards printed, right? The greatest in the kingdom. This is, this is ridiculous. The irony of it all, of Jesus saying, I'm going to give of myself. I'm going to serve the world. I'm going to lay my life down. And all the people can do around the table is wonder which one of them will be able to take over. More than about the sacrifice, more than about the eternal significance of the event. They were close to falling prey to that sin that has stuck around since the beginning. Plaguing creation, wanting the kingdom, or wanting to be their their own kings without the true king. In this case, they wanted to be the king of the little kingdom that they thought they could have. This might be a bit must be understanding, but I, I just it came to mind this morning as I was preparing, and I, it was the Lion King with Simba as as he's frustrated about having to go and do all these things, being told to do this and do that and be here and don't do that. These are your rules. These are your, these are your boundaries. And then he starts singing, I just can't wait to be king. And, and the reality of that is saying, I just can't wait for my dad, the king, to die so that I can take over. What arrogance of these, these men who were selected from, from really the, the, the reject pile, these men who were not selected to go further and become rabbis, these men who were not selected to go further, they were fishermen and tax collectors. These were the bottom of the heap, the uneducated, the undesirables, saved, taken out of that world and given these places of prominence in the kingdom of God. And that's not enough. They're just questioning who's going to take the mantle on. This first verse reveals the nature of the disciples' hearts. I mean, think of what they had seen and experienced and been a part of, what they had done with Jesus, the, the miracles, the healings, casting out demons. They had seen people fed. They had seen the, cl- the crowds clamoring after Jesus and his disciples Houses had roofs ripped off so that people could be close to Jesus. People followed Jesus and the disciples out into the wilderness for days on end. People even tried to take Jesus and make him king by force. And yet often they saw Jesus trying to keep his name and his true identity hidden, but with the right leader. With one of them, think about the movement that they could create. Think about the kingdom that they could form. They could, they could overthrow the Sadducees and the Pharisees and get rid of that old dead system and bring about this new one. Or even, if they got enough people, they could take on the Romans and really make Israel that, that country that they believe it was supposed to be. With Jesus gone, one of them in charge, one of them would get the glory and the honor the honor before men, the seat of honor at feasts and wedding, the one who would get the praise, the authority, and the power. When you flesh this first verse out, it's very terrifying. Because it's not just about the disciples. I think if we stop and we ask ourselves a few questions, we'll realize that we are wanting to be the kings of our own lives, our own little kingdoms as well. Like always, it's easy to demonize the disciples and to point out where they go wrong. And yet when someone cuts us off in traffic, what's our response? Is it anger? 
When you're embarrassed at work or in front of others, what's your response? Is it to protect your image? When something goes wrong with your health, what's your response? Despair? When you don't get the raise at work that you think you deserved or you're overlooked for the promotion, how do you act? When you find out that you're not invited to an event but your friends were, when your spouse or boyfriend, girlfriend, or friends don't reciprocate when you serve them, are you put off? When your kids don't listen to you, I don't know that one. Somebody else. How do we respond when our work, our efforts, our service isn't met with the glowing reviews and repayment and praise and service being lifted up that we expect? It shows that we desire to be lifted up. We desire to be praised. We desire to be glorified. What do we do when we believe our kingdom and, and our rule is being threatened? We lash out. We become angry. We, we try to protect it. We become demanding of others, impatient and hard-hearted. It's noticeable that if I stand back and look at the way that I've been attacked in my life, I actually care more about me being honored than about God being honored in my life. And I need to repent of that every single day. If there's a throne in my house, who or what sits on it? How does what I I fear, hope for, desire show who sits on that throne? We can point out the disciples and their desire to be the kings of that kingdom, and yet it's so easy for us to fall prey to that same sin. We fall into the way of the world. And that's what verse 25 talks about. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors. The leader of this world, the leaders of this world expect to be served and use their power to be served and elevated. We get the idea of that first part of the verse. The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. Right? They use their, their military, their, their money, their power, their, their laws, their authority to stay in power. They use them to, to take taxes and, and to put you into military service. I mean, this is still happening today. We, we do this. We allow people to be over top of us. They use their power and their authority to, to stay in power, trying to prove that they are worthy of still being in power. The next bunch of months, as we come up to a federal election, you'll see it. People trying to prove that they're worthy of being in that place of power. They're fighting for the seat. They're fighting for that. They use their authority to maintain control. Keep us, and I'm I'm not talking about our politicians right now. I'm I'm just talking about nothing in particular. (laughs) But keeping us down so that they can have power and authority. Think of the kingships in the world. The only way that they stay kings is by having people serve them. But benefactors might be one that we don't understand as much. Benefactors was an honorific title given to Greco-Roman rulers, princes, emperors, and even to gods. In the honor culture of that world, public recognition in various forms was a required return for generosity. So whenever you did something for someone in public, you expected to be praised. And we, we still know this. When you give donations to a hospital, sometimes you get your name on the wall. Or you get a brick on the ground, right? There's a plaque that can go on the wall if you give a big enough gift. There's schools named after certain people because they've they've bequeathed certain amounts of money to that organization. I came across this one. It was funny. Uh, Michael Bloomberg, 
uh, a few years ago gave uh, 1.7 billion, I think, uh, amazing, 1.7 billion uh, to a school that now, you know, it's uh, the School of Medicine, the Michael Bloomberg School of Medicine. The, the ironic thing was at, at the speech when he was giving it, he said, I look forward to the day when people, uh, it was about um, scholarships, I look forward to the day when people aren't judged on their pocketbook by, by the quality of their character, says the guy who gets a school named after him totally wanting to be judged on the quality of how much he gave. The problem that Luke points to may be illustrated with reference, and this is from one of the commentaries I was reading, reference to the cities in the Roman world. The emperor himself modeled what was expected of the wealthy elite in every city, namely the practice of generous benefaction. Rather than pay taxes, the wealthy contributed time and money in the service of the cities and towns. This form of benefaction was not managed centrally as though wealth would be distributed where needs were generally agreed. Instead, gifts were made at the whim of the givers. What's more, through private involvement of this kind, it was necessitated by deficiencies in the city treasuries. It was at the advantage of the wealthy that the city's finances be kept in this weakened condition. Private benefaction was the primary means by which the wealthy were legitimated as those who most deserved or uh, most were most deserving of public office and prestige in the community. In order to provide leadership, wealth was required, so only the wealthy could provide leadership and thus enjoy the honor and self-advancement reserved for those who gave so generously. This pattern pervaded the world so that giving of gifts brought with it obligation for service and honor. Do you understand? The idea of being, I will give of my time, I will give of my money, I will use my authority only if it brings me advancement. Only if it comes back on me that people will serve me, lift me up, elevate me, give me the prestige and the honor that I believe I'm due because of the gift, because of the time, because of the money, because of whatever that I have given, I need to get it back. The goal was to be seen as useful and desirable by the world, to be honored and elevated by the use of what they had to gain more. He said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. See, the problem that these disciples had forgotten is that they weren't the ones who were worthy of the kingdom. They hadn't earned a position. They were gifted it. What do you have to stand on? Why, why would you expect to be served when you have nothing to give? When, it, when it's not even yours to give in the first place. They had forgotten that grace was extended to them, that the gift that they had been given, they had forgotten that they were not supposed to have spin-off kingdoms, but they were supposed to be all in for the kingdom of God. They looked for the return on their service, their authority, and their work, which is why they were fighting for the position in the first place. Again, it's easy to look at them and what they were doing and how the world worked, but it still works that way so often. Have we ourselves fallen prey to using our time and our money, our power, our authority, our positions, our honors as a way of advancing our own kingdoms, as being noticed, as being honored, as being elevated in our positions? Some of us, and, and I will say this as working in the church, some of us can even use our Christianity as a way of doing that. Look how well that person serves. Look at how they give. Look at how they 
preach. Look at the books that they have written. Look at what they've done. And we expect to be lifted up and honored for what we've done. Do we believe that the kingdom of God is better off because we're in it? Or that we deserve to be in the kingdom of God? Are we living in such a way that tries to prove our worth or where we use our position as a Christian to prove that we deserve to be a Christian? Do we serve in such a way that we are looking for the praise and the worship of those around us? The question that comes out in this verse is, do we view ourselves as a benefactor, the one who gives Or do we view ourselves as a beneficiary, the one who has received? Are we the one who wields power to further our kingdom, or are we the one who has been given power to serve? The reality of the kingdom comes next, serving without regard. This is what verse 26 says, But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. But not so with you. You should not expect to be served. You should be like the one who forgoes the status claims that you may think you have. You're to be like your father who gives every moment of every day, even to the wicked and the ungrateful, without return. Think about that for a second. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. Those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. The youngest is most likely related to the idea of benefactors. That connection means that being the youngest will have to do with forgoing, like I said, status demands. You're not the beneficiary. You're not looking for the recognition Youngsters in this day and age had no status that they would require any kind of recognition. You were just another servant. They can't have the positions of power politically. They wouldn't have been given the seat of honor. Being the youngest was a position that was thankless, really. Which means that the greatest is not to press his authority on those he leads. He is rather to behave as one who serves them. The youngest is not to be seen as one who is expecting return, but the one who forgoes it completely and serves others. Age in this day, and I still think it happens today, was seen as a status scale. The older you were, that started your kind of importance barometer. This is why Jesus, in in the mere passage in Luke 9, this this same structure where Jesus says, "I'm, I'm going to be betrayed, and then they start arguing about who's going to be the greatest, he brings a child someone who has no status, and says, you must become like one of these. Yes, pure and innocent, but also one who doesn't expect to have the position of power and authority. As I studied for this, I was shocked, and I I know I shouldn't have been, and I was reminded of the work that really goes about unnoticed not worshipped appropriately, that's not receiving the, the dues it deserves. And it's the work that the Godhead undergoes every single moment of every single day and the work of sustaining and creating, ruling, redeeming, and restoring all of creation. 
both to the righteous and to the sinner, to the plants and to the animals, to the stars, to the plants, to the oceans, to the land, and yet he never receives the just rewards he's due for his magnificent work. More than that, it's not that he doesn't receive his just rewards, his, his worship, his praise, his glory, his honor. It's that those of us who don't give him that, he doesn't just snap out of existence. The indescribable patience and graciousness, how abounding in love to a loveless creation God is, has got to be one of the biggest things that hits us today. I get disappointed if my wife doesn't say nice things to me. I get angry when my kids don't honor me. I get so frustrated if, if, I, if I'm overlooked for something I've done at work. And yet the God of the universe daily gives me breath. Daily gives me the, the, the mind to think, the, the ability to work. I'm, I'm daily given these things. And so often I'm slow to worship him and, and to recognize him for what he has done and what he continues to do. I easily forget that I'm supposed to be about building God's kingdom and not my own. Often I'm like the servant in Matthew 18 who has become before the master and the master has declared, I need the money you owe me. And it is an amount that I can never pay and I beg him. I beg him for more time and instead of giving me more time, he just wipes out the debt. And instead of worshiping him and and glorifying him, I go out and find someone who owes me what I think I'm deserved and I throw them in prison. I, I, I judge them because they aren't giving me what I think I'm due. How often I need to repent of how often I forget to worship God throughout my day. My proud heart is easily fooled into believing that I deserve it, that I'm the center. And when we look to God, we see an example that needs to humble us and stir our hearts truly to worship. This is what verse 27 says. For who is the greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. It's a simple question. Who's greater? We, we know the answer without even thinking about it. It's the one who's served. It's the one who is, is greater, who has the greater bank account, who can pay for the servants. It's, it's the one who is owed that's the one who's greater. The, the servant doesn't come in and demand to be fed before the master. The, the, the servant doesn't come in and demand anything. Who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Well, it's the one at the table. And Jesus says, but I am among you as one who serves. We know When we look into scripture and when we understand who God is, we know he is greater. So often we get caught up in looking at the the bank account and the cars, the vacation, the houses, all the things that we see and we think that those people are great. We look to uh, 
people in culture, as people who are worthy of our, our praise and our, and our honor and our glory, as, as if they've done something special. And yet Jesus is the only one truly with a bank account because he owns everything. He's the only one who actually ever sits at the seat of honor because he sits at the right hand of the Father. He's the only one who deserves all the praise, the honor, the glory because he is the self-existent, eternal, all-powerful creator of the universe who holds all things together because of his omnipotent, his, his total power, who knows all things and is sinless and pure and holy set apart. That's why he's worthy. Who's greater? Well, it's God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And yet, what's the example that Jesus gives us? I am among you as one who serves. He comes and he stoops to the place of of servanthood where he would wash his own disciples' feet. Even to the ones who would deny him, the one who would betray him and the ones who would flee from him in his time of need. What other God has stooped to become a curse, to redeem a cursed people? What God would give of himself to remove the wrath that his creation deserved? There's only one. This gracious God who welcomes this sinful, disobedient creation into relationship after justifying us through his blood shed on a cross, making us right with him, saving us from the sin that had been dealt with on the cross. Like, that's God. And if it doesn't lead us to worship, if it doesn't lead us to, to treasure him and to, to want to give back and, and to live in his kingdom, I don't know what will. I don't know what will. The question I asked at the beginning, how can we change the way in which we live expectant of receiving immediate tangible return for our work, our efforts, and our service? How how can we instead come under the same servant nature as God who graciously gives daily without receiving his just worship, returns, and pay for what he does without seizing and creating, sustaining, redeeming, and restoring by truly seeing God? by truly seeing his work and treasuring him above any kingdom we could build or have or earn or be a part of because we see him for who he truly is and we see him for the promises that he gives us, the hope that we have. The first part of this passage might seem like this is a very thankless thing to be a disciple of God. Be the youngest, forgo any kind of any kind of position, any kind of glory, any kind of honor. Forgo that. D- don't, don't look for that, but give it to God. Give it to God alone. And yet the promise from verses 28 to 30 are pretty special. Read that with me. 28. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. The, the promise is that what we have right here and right now isn't it. Because we don't know how long we have it anyways. There's no promise that we have 100 years of ruling and reigning and, and being served and glorified and honored. There's no promise. 
A car accident comes, and it's over. Cancer comes, and it's over. Sickness comes, death, anything can happen. Your reputation can be gone in a moment. One act of stupidity in our culture right now can mean that you are just buried. There's no, there's no sure thing about creating and sustaining and build, having a kingdom here and now. But the promise that I assign to you is my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That is an eternal promise. That is an eternal promise that cannot be taken away from us because God has assigned it to us. God has given it to us. Not without our, our work in it. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. What is that talking about? It's a tricky one. The trials really kind of goes back to, to different parts of the Gospel of Luke and ways in which Jesus has called us out of the way of the world and into the way of the kingdom. It's something as simple as which type of soil are you? The one who uh, accepts the word of God with joy but has no root in it, 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 it goes away. Are you the type of soil who it comes upon uh, but it's the rocky path and it just gets trampled on and destroyed? Are you the type of soil who it shoots up but weeds come up and the, the cares of this world come and wrap around and destroy it before it can come and be a harvest? Or are you the type of soil who is the good soil? who continues on and actually reaps a harvest? Are you the kind that in the place of Jesus and his temptations would succumb? Where he says, yes, let me, let me test God. Let me have the earthly kingdom. Let me be served. Those are the kind of trials that we need to reject that we wouldn't succumb to trying to build our own kingdoms, that we wouldn't try and do it on our own, but we would see the kingdom of God and we would aim for that every single day. The ruling thing might throw you off a bit. The 12 tribes of Israel, that's tricky too. It looks like it might just be for the apostles, right? This, this, this bit, the rest of it we can take, but this bit, no, that's theirs. no. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul actually fleshes this idea out for the believers in Corinth. He says, don't you know that we will judge the cosmos? We will judge the angels. In Romans 8, it talks about being co-heirs with God and heirs of God. We get to be a part of this. There's a future for us. One where we sit and we eat and we drink at the table of Jesus with him in perfect, restored relationship forever. Where we sit and we, we rule and we judge with Christ forever. That is a crazy promise. That's better than anything I could ask for or imagine. I would get, I would get God for eternity. The, the one thing I have been created for is to worship him fully for the rest of my days. I would get that. Be with him, see him, know him. Be able to explore every aspect of who he is and what he's done. 
The question we have today is, are we willing to reject the use of our power and our authority, our wealth to gain standing and further our own kingdoms? Are we willing to reject the desires of this, this world to be served as our own kings? Will we serve the powers of this world, succumb to the temptations that Satan will put up in front of us? We will serve something or someone. It's a promise. C.S. Lewis talks about this. We will serve something or someone. That's just the reality of how we were created. It's not that we aren't good at servanthood. It's that we're all too willing to serve lesser masters. Our lusts, our desires, our idols, our sins. These things that own us. We think they are serving us, but they, they, they become owners of our hearts. They, they warp them. The problem is that we're all too happy to serve things that we believe serve us when the greatest fulfillment of our hearts is to worship God and serve him alone. It's dying to self that we will experience being glorified in the kingdom of God. It's being the least, forgoing the status that we will be welcomed into the places of judgment, welcomed to the table of Jesus for eternity. Will we become like the youngest? Will we serve as we have been served by Jesus? The only way that this all happens, the only way that we do this is if we stay with Jesus throughout this, this time on earth, through these trials that we have, we serve him and him alone. We serve without regard for our own honor. The only way we actually achieve this is by letting Jesus be king, by treasuring God and what God has given us, seeing the promises that we can receive, God himself, him today and him for eternity. This is how we can live in the kingdom of God. Let's pray.